If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in them to, to the book of Ruth, chapter 3. Ruth, chapter 3. Uh, we're going to continue the series that we've been in called The Outsider from the book of Ruth. And I, I, uh, I just want to tell you that I did not intend to come back to chapter 3 this week. If you look in the back of your program, you'll see that we just have the verses from chapter 4. But uh, there's a couple things that I, I just thought that I needed to hit. Um, a couple things that I, as I was preparing, I thought, man, i got to make sure that, that I cover these things as well. So we're going we're gonna to take a pretty big uh, section of Scripture uh, this morning. Any attempt to understand all of the ills that plague our society have to begin with two truths. The first truth is this, that God designed... Uh, the world to operate under the lordship of Christ. That's number one. Hey, anybody hot in here besides me? Is it just me? Okay. So could somebody uh, go tell somebody to turn on the air? Okay. Um, okay, back to the... If you're going to understand the ills of society, you got to understand that God designed the world to operate under the lordship of Christ. If you think of any system... Uh, whether it's a car engine, whether it's a, a watch, a computer, any system is designed in such a way that all of the components work together in a way that they enhance one another. And Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tells us that in its original form, that's exactly how the world worked. The world worked in perfect harmony with Christ as its unifying principle. Christ held everything together, made every system work together very well. There were no government shutdowns. In Genesis 1 and 2. There was no poverty. There was no family breakdown. uh, No crime. No death. It never rained on Sundays. Uh, No one needed hip surgery. The Cowboys and the Colts always won all of their football games. That that was Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, all the systems of the world worked the way they were supposed to because Christ oversaw them. Christ unified all of the systems of the world. Now, clearly, that's not the way uh, the things are today. And the reason for that is a second truth that you need to know. And that is that Adam and Eve's disobedience back in the Garden of Eden dethroned Christ and enthroned man as his own Lord. Okay, so think about this. If any any system, if any one component part of any system gets ripped out of the system or if another component part is placed somewhere that it doesn't belong, uh, the system begins to break down, doesn't it? And it ceases to work. That's true in a computer, true in a watch, true in in a car engine, true in any kind of system. And in the Garden of Eden, what happened is that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, dethroned Christ, took him off of the throne, made him no longer the Lord of the universe. Uh, and he was the unifying principle for the world. So when he steps, when he is taken off the throne and man is put where he does not belong, man is put on the throne of the world, then the system all crashes. And as a result, the Bible says, that all of creation, the word it uses is it groans. Ever had a bad case of the flu? You know exactly what that feels like, right? To groan because you've got a bad case of the flu. All right, that's what the Bible says the whole universe feels because man has been exalted to a place in the system that man does not, uh, should not be and was never designed to be uh, in. The world sputters, it grinds, every system on the planet disintegrates. Spiritual rebellion has led to psychological disintegration, which has led to social disintegration, and even nature has ceased to work the way it's supposed to. Okay, that's, that's what happens, that's what's happening in the world on a macro level, and that's why the world that we live in looks the way it does. Now, here's the thing. What's true of the world on a macro level is also true of you individually, your life on a micro level. What the Bible says is that you've inherited from Adam and Eve this same tragic instinct 
to believe that you make a better Lord for your life than Christ does. And just a little bit of news for you today. You don't make a very good Lord of your life. Okay? You don't make a very good Lord of your life. Every problem in your life stems from trying to be your own Lord. And yet, you and I, we, we, we all, we cling tenaciously to being our own Lord, regardless of how personally destructive it is. Because letting go of being Lord of your life, oh my goodness, that's so scary. Letting go of your messianic delusions, though it would be incredibly liberating, is incredibly frightening to us. And God knows how difficult this is for us. He knows how difficult it is for us to let go of those messianic delusions. And so in his grace and mercy, he works through the events and the circumstances of our lives to enable us to surrender control of our lives to Christ. Because he knows how hard that is. You want to hold on to it, but God knows how hard it is. And so he works to enable you. He works through the events and circumstances of your life to enable you to surrender control to Christ. And so what, what we're going to do this morning uh, in the passage you're going to look at, I, what I want to do is I want to show you uh, in chapter 3 two ways that God works through the circumstances of our lives to help us learn to surrender control of our lives to Christ's lordship instead of our own. Okay, Two ways that Christ, work, uh, that Christ works in the circumstances of our lives to enable us to surrender control of our lives to Christ. Okay, does that sound good? Are you with me? Say amen if you're with me. Okay, good. Let's just do a brief review uh, for those of you who may not have been with us. I just want to catch you up on what's been happening in, this, uh, in the book of Ruth. Uh, the story opens with a Jewish woman named Naomi. Man, if somebody could run to someone to tell them to turn the air down, I would really appreciate it because it's getting hot. Um, it's the lights, the candles, all of that. It's just hot. Uh, okay, so uh, the story opens, the book of Ruth, with a Jewish woman named Naomi who... Um, her husband, her two married sons, they're living outside of the place uh, of the land of Israel in a place called Moab. And by the end of the first chapter, all of Naomi's dreams have shattered, haven't they? Her husband has died. Her two married sons have died. They died childless. And as you can imagine, she's angry and she's bitter and she's in a great deal of despair. But God gives her graciously a daughter-in-law named Ruth, uh, who is a Moabitess, the text says, who sticks with her mother-in-law and follows her back to Bethlehem. Ruth meets, she just happens to meet, a godly and wealthy older man named Boaz, who seems to have signaled that he would be willing to be what's called the kinsman redeemer for the family if they wanted him to, which meant that he would buy back any land that they had had to sell. Uh, he would marry Ruth, and they would even, he would even have a child with her, hopefully a son who would carry on the family's name. And he could also inherit the land that he, uh, Boaz, had bought back from, uh, from the family. Ruth and Naomi signaled to Boaz that indeed they'd like for him to play that role. But I want to go back to the passage that we looked at last week. And I want to just see something that happened that we didn't talk about last week. Look at verse 11. This is Boaz speaking. This is after Ruth has signaled that, yes, indeed, they would like for him to be uh, their kinsman redeemer. Watch this. He says, and now my daughter... He says, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you're a woman of noble character. Now, here's, what, here's where I want you to notice. I want you to focus in on this. He says, although it's true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. 
And then he says, stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Now, we didn't talk about this last week. But can you imagine how devastating this news must have been to Ruth? She's gotten her heart around marrying Boaz. And Boaz says, yes, I, I, he says, I want to marry you too. But there's this, there's this little problem. There's, there's another guy closer in line who's legally got the right to do this, to marry you. And we've got, we've got to give him the chance. Now, can you imagine how devastating that must have been to Ruth? The text doesn't tell us what she felt, but I'm saying, I, I, I believe she had to be devastated by that. She's not, she's not wanting to marry some bozo. She wants to marry Boaz. Okay, I told my wife that joke this morning, and she goes, it's kind of funny, but don't beg for laughter, and I'm kind of begging at this point. So, I thought that was really creative. Okay. Um, okay, so she doesn't want to marry any bozo. She wants to marry Boaz. <laughs> there you go. That sounds much better on the podcast uh, when you do that. Um, what's, what if this guy's a loser? I mean, what if, what if he's a jerk? And after all she's been through, don't you think that she's got to be thinking at this point, why can't anything just work easily? Why can't anything just go the way that, you know, the easy way? Why can't it just go my way? And I think this is one of the most devastating lessons of life, especially for Americans, especially for young Americans. Because we, look, young Americans, we, we tend to be very naive uh, about this reality that life doesn't really care what we want or hope, or dream for. Do you know that? I mean, life just, and some of you who are older are like, duh, yes, I know that, I've been through that. But look, some of you who are younger haven't experienced that yet, and, and I'm just here to tell you that life doesn't care what you want or hope for or dream for. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't care, because I do believe that God cares deep. I think he cares very much about your dreams. And um, I, I think he knows that most of your dreams tend to be pretty myopic and 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 very much, much too small for anyone's good. But I think he cares about your dreams, and I think he honors those dreams. I'm just saying that life doesn't care, and, and, and it even resists our hopes and dreams. I dreamed as a boy of playing Major League Baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, and I want to tell you that I am this close to having to give up on that dream. It's very de- it's devastating. It really is. You've dreamed all of your life of having children and uh, being a mom, but... Uh, suddenly you learn that you can't have children. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Or maybe you hate your job. Um, you got the courage up to apply for some other job and you interviewed for it and you felt like it went well and that this would be your dream job, but uh, the call comes in and it turns out you didn't get the job. Now, I'm not saying uh, that nothing ever goes right because uh, there are many things that go right in this world. But there is a lot. There's enough that doesn't go the way we want it to go that it can be terribly discouraging. And while theologically, I don't believe God causes those setbacks in our lives, I do believe that he allows them. And here's the first point that I, uh, I want to make. I want to show you how God uses the circumstances of our lives to teach us to surrender, is that he uses setbacks in our lives. He uses setbacks in our lives to teach us uh, surrender. One of my favorite authors, uh, favorite one of my favorite pastors, a uh, guy by the name of 
uh, pastor of the name of Tim Qu- uh, Keller. I follow him uh, on Twitter. And he tweeted this just a few days ago. It just came in at a perfect time. He, he said this. He says, when pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. And as devastating a lesson as that is, um, I think you would agree with those kinds of lessons, that that's a, it's necessary to free us from our messianic delusions. You know, most of us, well, all of us are convinced that there's no one who could possibly have a better plan for our lives than we do. And, and we're just convinced that if we follow the right formulas and do all of the right things, we can control how our lives are going to turn out. But life in a fallen world, just it does not work like that. And that's a lesson that we all have to learn sooner or later. Uh, another author and uh, theologian by the name of Lynn Sweet, he once said this, I love this. He said, surrender is the willingness to be open to possibilities that we cannot imagine. And I would just suggest to you this morning that if you've experienced a setback in your life recently, or if, if perhaps you were to experience one tomorrow, uh, where something that you've put your hopes and dreams on doesn't come true, you, you have two choices. You have two choices. One is to hold on to it with clenched fists and get angry and sit and stew about it and turn cynical and hopeless that life didn't honor your dream and it's never going to honor any dreams, uh, which is the option that many people choose. The other is to open your hands and consider that perhaps... Uh, God in his mercy is using the setback in your life to get you to consider that you aren't the best Lord for your life. And that maybe he's challenging you to surrender your dream so that he can lead you to something in his wisdom that is much greater and much better for you and for his kingdom plans as well. I have this thing that I do in my own devotional time. Um, It's not inspired. It's just something that I do um, where... In my prayer time, I just I take a few moments and I just surrender all of my dreams. I tell God my dreams. I tell him what I hope. I tell him my vision for my life. I tell him all of that, but I surrender all of that. Lord, uh, here it is. I, I, these are my expectations, but I don't have a right to hold on to those expectations. I surrender them to you. And whatever you want to do with those, if you want to fulfill them, fulfill them. If you don't want to fulfill them, don't. If, if there's something better, do, do something better. But I just open my hands and leave them to him. And that may be something that God is calling you to do. Maybe, maybe you've experienced a setback and he's calling you at this moment in your life to just open these, your hands and to surrender your dreams, your expectations to him. Okay, I want, to, I want you to see what happens next. Skip down to verse 16. We saw this last week. I want to go over it again. It says, when Ruth came, this is verse 16 of chapter 3, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, asked, uh, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me uh, these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And then Naomi said, here's what I want you to see. Wait. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. I, I don't like to wait. And may I point out that the word wait is a four letter word. I don't know if you've noticed that before. But it is a four-letter word. Can you imagine how hard it must have been for Ruth to wait 
while Boaz was working out her entire future. I mean, it was just the rest of her life that was on the line. Can you imagine how hard it must have been for her to wait? And I, I want to add something. that it is, It's one thing to wait when you're forced to wait, and like you have no choice. You know, you're sitting in an office, you got to wait. You're standing in line someplace, you got to wait. You're sitting behind somebody who's accelerator challenged at a stoplight, and you have to wait. That's one thing to wait. You know, you sit, you, have you ever, oh, have you ever had this situation where you're sitting in a parking lot waiting for a car to back out and you're just, you know, you're, you got to get that parking spot, but it takes, do you know studies have shown that it takes seven seconds longer for people to back out of a parking lot when someone is waiting for them to back out? Did you know that? It's a conspiracy and I have known it for years, um, but studies have actually confirmed it. Seven seconds longer. It is one thing though when you have to wait and you have no choice, but it is a whole different thing to choose to wait to make sure that what you're doing is the right thing. And this is one of the things that strikes me so much about this passage. In spite of the fact that Boaz and Ruth both want this marriage, did you notice that they're unwilling to compromise what is right legally for what they want? Boaz says, there's another man who's a closer kinsman, and we got to make sure that we give him the right to redeem this family, to marry you. Did you notice that? I want to ask you something. Would you have been willing to risk losing the wife that you wanted or the husband that you wanted in order to make sure that what you got was right in the eyes of the Lord? Would you have been willing to do that? Sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances in which our desires conflict with what God has commanded us. Or maybe it just conflicts with the timing of God's commands. And here's the second point that I want to make today. One of the ways that God uses the circumstances in our lives to teach us to surrender is that God uses waiting to teach us surrender. Sometimes we wait on things that we have no control over. We wait for news. We wait for people. We wait for healing. And God uses those times in our lives to teach us to surrender our timing and our wisdom to accept His. But there are other times in which God wants us to choose to surrender our desires to His commands or to His explicit will. Now, let me just let me give you an obvious example of that in our culture. Uh, sex before marriage. And look, I realize how ridiculous this sounds in this culture. But uh, God has a perfect timing for when sex is supposed to occur and when it's not. And here's the thing. Oh, phrase, God, the air conditioning came on. Um, (laughs) Sex is not just about the body. Um, Sex is about the soul. And because God um, wants sex because of that, because, because the sex is about the soul, God wants sex reserved for the marriage relationship. Sex outside of marriage, it, it, look, you know how it perpetuates, uh, how it can perpetuate things like STDs and it can cause unwanted pregnancies and all of that. But I want to tell you something. The greatest damage that sex outside of marriage does is it damages the souls of those who practice, who practice it. 
And I, I, I wish I could tell you the number of marriages that I've counseled over the years whose deepest problems began with their sexual relationship before their marriage. And that's something that anybody who's on this side of marriage can never understand. But boy, if you're on the other side of marriage, you can understand that. Sexual desires are, are, are one example of a desire that God wants you to choose to surrender uh, to his timing. Here, here's another one. Um, I can't tell you, I've, I have known a lot of women who so long for marriage that they compromised their sense of what was right and wrong and married a person who didn't know Christ. The Bible calls that being unequally yoked. They married someone who didn't know Christ, hoping that perhaps they could change them, that one day they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I want to tell you that most of those women um, are some of the most lonely people in the world. They are lonelier after having married, uh, gotten married, than they were before they married. You never marry someone to change them. And God says not to marry somebody who isn't uh, a believer in Jesus Christ. The question is, would you be willing to surrender your desire to get married? Perhaps what you feel for some person that doesn't know Christ, would you be willing to surrender that? And just say, Lord, I'll let you be the Lord over my life. I don't make a very good Lord. I'll make you the Lord over my life. I'll say no. I'll say no. Would you be willing to do that? Sometimes we come to these places where God says, I want you to be willing to let me be Lord over your life and you just be a servant. You do the right thing, regardless of what you desire. And what you need to understand is that those moments in your life, when you come to those kinds of places, those are wonderful moments for you to have the opportunity to learn surrender and to learn to be able to say, Lord, you be Lord, I'll be a servant. I'm going to do what you say, not what I think. That's what those opportunities are. Great moments for you to learn to surrender. Waiting is one of the ways that God teaches us to surrender. And there's a lot more I can say about that, but I want you to see, I just want you to see one last thing this morning. And it happens in chapter four. Um, chapter four, Boaz goes to the place, because this, is, because this legal issue is there in front of them, go, Boaz goes to the place that legal matters like this were dealt with. He finds there, at this place, he finds the closer kinsman redeemer and, and he proposes to this kinsman redeemer that he, that he buy back the family land that Naomi's family had to sell. It's a pretty basic real estate deal. You buy back this land, it'll become yours. You can add it to your estate. This potential kinsman redeemer says, great, I'll redeem it. I mean, it's a great real estate deal for him. He gets to add this to his real estate holdings. So he's like, he's all in. And it seems like the story now is going to go in a completely different direction than you had hoped, Ruth had hoped, Naomi had hoped, Boaz had hoped, that I had hoped. But I want you to watch this. Boaz is no dummy. Skip down to verse 5. Here's what he says. He says, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow. It's like he's slipping this in at the end. He's slipping this in at the very end. He says, he says, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And at this, the kinsman redeemer said, uh, I can't redeem it. 
because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. The text gives us a little commentary here at verse 7. It says, Now in early times in Israel, uh, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Don't get bogged down in that. Here we go. Verse 8. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And to signify that, he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malin. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malin's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. And then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the women who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Though the off, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Okay, so it actually ends up working the way Ruth and Boaz wanted it to work. But what I want you to see is this. In this passage... In those verses, you get this contrast between two kinds of people. On the one hand, you've got this other kinsman redeemer. By the way, do you know what his name was? You know what the other kinsman redeemer's name was? No, no, you don't know. No one knows what his name was. In fact, when he first comes on the scene back at the beginning of chapter 4, the NIV says that Boaz referred to him. He said, my friend, come on over here. But the Hebrew word actually means old so-and-so. No one knows this guy's name. There's a reason for that. I'll tell you about that in a minute. This other kinsman redeemer is a guy who, as long as it profits him, he was willing to redeem this tragic family. But as soon as he learned that redeeming this family would jeopardize his financial well-being, he was out of the deal. Because one thing that he wasn't willing to surrender to the Lord was his financial well-being. And then on the other hand, there's Boaz, willing to surrender whatever the cost to his financial well-being just to be an agent of grace to this woman and this family. Now, let me ask you something. Which of those two men, which life has more meaning? Which legacy would you rather leave? Which life... Would you rather live? You see, the author of the book of Ruth wants us to see that whatever that other guy was worth, however many zeros were next to his name when he died, his selfishness made him forgettable. So forgettable, we don't even know his name. While on the other hand, Boaz's sacrifice leaves us this unbelievable legacy of grace in the Scriptures. Now, here's here's the point I want to make with that. Last point this morning. While there is a cost to surrender, there is a greater cost to non-surrender. You live your life with you on the throne. You give up a life of beauty and impact and meaning. Letting go of the throne of your life, it is very hard to do. Letting God be the Lord of your life over every nook and cranny of your life is hard. No question. Surrender is not easy. It always costs you something. But the cost of non-surrender is always greater than the cost of surrender. We'll talk about this more next week, but Boaz 
points us to the ultimate kinsman redeemer, Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified prayed that the Lord would find some other way than his death on the cross for humanity to be rescued. But then he ended the prayer with these words of surrender. He said, Not my will, uh, but thy will be done. Redeeming us cost Christ everything. He willingly surrendered his entire life for our lives. In light of that, is there anything, is there any part of our lives that we wouldn't surrender or couldn't surrender for a redeemer like Christ who paid with his own life to redeem you and me? We're going to take communion this morning and um, as we do, I, I want you to think about the elements of communion. Uh, I want you to think of them as, as a demonstration of your willingness to surrender whatever God would call you to surrender, um, to let him be the Lord over your life. The ushers are going to come up. They're going to pass out the, the elements here in, in just a moment. You're going, to get, uh, you're going to get a little, we did this last time, it's like a, you get a little cup and a little piece of bread that is on the cup. And if you just tear off the, the, the lid of that bread, then you can eat that and then you'll be able to, to drink the cup after that. Hold the elements, thank you very much. So when you get them, it'll look like this. Just, just hold that in your hand and we're going to take the elements together. But what I, what I want you to think about as you get these elements is what it costs Christ to redeem you and what you'd be willing to surrender if Christ called you to surrender. Lord Jesus Christ, um, as the elements are passed this morning, I pray that we would be reminded of you, the ultimate redeemer. Lord, would you, would you challenge us this morning about what areas of our lives that we would be willing to surrender to you? there are some here who have never come to a place where they've surrendered to you to begin with. Never come to a place where they have accepted you as their Savior. I pray that perhaps today would be that day. But for those who have, Lord, there's still these moments, there's still these places in our lives that we need to surrender to you. Would you challenge us about that? Speak to us about that during our time of communion this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.